Hello, friends. Welcome to the Denology Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Weiner. Today is September 6th, and tomorrow will be the 50th anniversary of the Grateful Dead scintillating show in the Nassau Coliseum on September 7th, 1973. I first came across that show, um, I heard the Eyes of the World from that show, which was a bonus selection on the Wake of the Flood reissue CD. And also, it, it's the, it was the first performance of Let It Grow that night. And only in the last year or two have I really had a chance to soak in how great that show was. So that's going to be the main focus of Episode 6 here on the Deadology Podcast. And before we dive into that incredible uh, performance, let's uh, take a look at the history of the Nassau Coliseum and the Grateful Dead's history in that uh, building in Uniondale, New York, Long Island. Much to uh, my amazement, um, I thought the Grateful Dead, if I had to take a guess, I thought they probably played about 25 to 30 shows in the Nassau Coliseum. That would have been my guess. But then I looked at the, I looked it up and it was 42 shows in the Nassau Coliseum. So it was the Dead's the, the Dead's biggest stomping ground behind the Philly Spectrum in Madison Square Garden in, in the Northeast. So it's uh, an important building in, uh, in Grateful Dead history, obviously. Uh, so the, the Nassau Coliseum first uh, came into existence in uh, 1972. Uh, first game, first uh, uh, evening there for a crowd was the New York Nets of the American Basketball Association. But its most famously, uh, its most famous sports uh, legacy is obviously the New York Islanders, who played there for many years, and they won four Stanley Cups between 1979 and 1983. So that's probably the yeah definitely besides what the Grateful Dead did there, the other big legacy of the uh, Nassau Coliseum. But getting back to the Grateful Dead, they they played there almost from the beginning. Um, 1973, they played five shows. So you got everything from every show from 1973, pretty much you could attach the word great to. Uh, so uh, all the shows in the Coliseum, but five shows in the Nassau Coliseum that year. Pretty amazing. Three in March and September 7th and September 8th in 73. Uh, then there was a little break before they returned to the Coliseum. They came back in 1979. And once again, they brought some uh, special stuff to the Coliseum that year in uh, uh, January of 79, uh, January 10th. Uh, they, in the same show, they broke out Dark Star and St. Stephen. So it's obvious that this place meant something to them. The first time they played uh, Madison Square Garden was 1979. So up until, up until this point, the Nassau Coliseum was the big venue in the New York area where Deadheads got to see the dead. And also, um, it had a parking lot scene, which Madison Square Garden didn't have. So Coliseum had a, had a couple of cool, cool things going for it, even though there's nothing like Madison Square Garden. Nassau Coliseum got the same type crowds and a lot of the same energy, so it produced many great shows. In 1980, they, the Dead played three times in the Nassau Coliseum, and uh, a CD was uh, captured from uh, uh, from those performances. Go to Nassau. It was put out uh, many years later, 
but it's it's a great uh, representation of of those shows. Uh, the famous Sal Fear from the May 16th, 1980 show is uh, is in that collection. Hot Jack Straw Franklin's re- really a great uh, three night run. Uh, 1981, they they had another three night run, run there. Um, they played in May. My first Grateful Dead show was May 8th. Not, not my first. My first in the Coliseum. This was my second show. Was May 8th, 1981. Uh, if I could do it all over again, I would have caught the one on May 6th, which was, you know, an, all, an all-time great one, the best of 1981, uh, great first set. And in the, in the second set before drums, after He's Gone, which they dedicated to Bobby Sands, who had recently uh, passed away from the hunger strike, um, they they went into a caution Spanish jam. And it's 15 minutes of some of the hottest improvisation uh, they created that decade. So that made that a very special show. 1982, there was a pair of great shows there, especially the April 12th, 1982 show, uh, which I dig a lot. The um, Played there 84. I saw those shows. 1985, March 28th, 85 was a great show. Opened up... Uh, Truck stack, smoke stack, truck stack. <laughs> I guess you could call it truck stack in a way. It's trucking into smoke stack to open open that show. Man, it was uh, the, probably the best show of that three night run. And that was the, the last time I seen seen them was that, that that those three nights in the Coliseum in 1985. Of course, they came back in 1990. They had the amazing Branford Marcella show where he played that Eyes of the World, which is probably the in my opinion the greatest uh performance by a special guest ever with the grateful dead on the stage what branford does on that eyes of the world is just mind-boggling and uh they also did dark star that night and hot estimated and uh i'm not an expert on a lot of 90s stuff i didn't see him as much during that period but they played a lot of shows there you know in the in the following years that's why i didn't realize they had played 42 shows there so an amazing history of the of the NASA Coliseum and the Grateful Dead together. And I wasn't at the Dead and Company show they played there in 2019. If I was, I would have known about this history a little better. The uh, They put a banner up to honor the Grateful Dead for the 42 shows and the two that Dead and Company had played there, um, the most by any artist ever in the NASA Coliseum. And one, uh, one other two. One other thing here about the uh, Nassau Coliseum, a personal, uh, a little personal thing. Um, I went to see an Islander game there in 1980, and Mike Bossy, my favorite player, scored two goals late, became the first NHL player to score 50 goals in the first 50 games of the season. It was the freaking coolest live event I was ever at in my life. On the ride home, my friend Seymour put Europe 72 into the tape deck, and that changed my life. It was much bigger than the the amazing sports event I just witnessed. And I, I heard that the Cumberland and the Jack Straw. I was like, I, was, I heard a new another world. Now I kind of understood why people love the Grateful Dead. So it was leaving the Nassau Coliseum that I I actually had my first relative um, my first relevatory Grateful Dead moment uh, on the way home. Europe seventy two uh, introduced to a. New world of music there. And one other Nassau Coliseum thing, uh, I saw my first rock and roll concert there the year before, Jethro Tull. And I tried pot for the first time, didn't get high, but it was a, a memorable uh, memorable time. Yeah, the Nassau Coliseum is inc- 
just a, a, a amazing rock and roll history there. Uh, because uh, the Madison Square Garden had the Rangers, the Knicks, a lot of events, you know, all kinds of things going on there. So many bands in the 70s and 80s, especially before the Meadowlands uh, was opened up in the, uh, like around 1983. So many bands, uh, the touring stop was Nassau Coliseum. So it's really a, a great rock and roll building. Um, I'm not sure what it is right now. The Islanders moved to a new building, and it's kind of in a state of uh, decline, which is uh, unfortunate. Not as many concerts there, but what an amazing history. Grateful Dead, Rock and Roll, Nassau Coliseum, New York Islanders, perfect together. The last show the Grateful Dead played before their East Coast Fall Tour was on Jerry Garcia's birthday, in uh, 1973, Roosevelt Stadium. So the Nassau Coliseum September 7th show kicked off the tour. They opened up uh, maybe a little cautiously to get going. Uh, Promisely an opener, get the sound right. Sugary and then Mexicali. And then the, the fourth song of the first set is where it really starts, uh, where things start clicking. Uh, the, the always infectious, uplifting 73 love each other the just the the upbeat tempo of that man it's it's beautiful i think if you took a, a poll uh amongst deadheads um and said most of them i think would prefer the 73 version to the slower version and uh years later starting in 1975 76 um but e- either way it's uh, the, the song's song's incredible but that 73 version there's something about it's just distinctive uh when you hear that you know you're listening to a 73 show and it puts you in the right mood i think the of the of the post 73 love each other's um probably the 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 best uh versions are the jerry garcia band ones where melvin seals playing uh organ and they get that real funky sound down which reminds you it's not as quick as the uh, 73 ones but it kind of brings you back to that the, the spirit of those uh, uh, 73 versions. So after this nice uh, love each other, they go into Jack Straw. And man, Jerry is picking on this. You know, the Jack Straws obviously weren't, the jams weren't as long as they would be, you know, in uh, 77 and years after come along. But uh, Jerry's guitar playing is so, so attentive. It's really a, a great Jack Straw. Uh, and then they go into the first Wake of the Flood number of the night, Road Jimmy. Uh, hypnotic, uh, as always, Road Jimmy delivers that, uh, that that hypnotic, unique, Grateful Dead feel. And it's the first song of the night from what will be their new album, Wake of the Flood. And Wake of the Flood came out in October 15th, about six weeks after after this show. And uh, moving moving on after Road Jimmy... We got two songs, Looks Like Rain and Deal, which were becoming mainstays in the first sets of uh, Grateful Dead shows. Uh, Two interesting songs to look at because um, as the years rolled on, 80s, 90s, Looks Like Rain Deal would often be a first set ender. And Looks Like Rain pretty much remained the same through the years, not much change to the structure of the song. Uh, For me personally, it it got a little boring. I, I find it, you know, sometimes I skip Looks Like Rain. There's so many Looks Like Rains on so many versions through the years. 
Um, but when I heard this this one from the Nassau Coliseum, you know, it just it took me back to how much at one time I loved this song. It's such a great blues tune, and th- this song there's no overblown, overdramatic. They just got really down to the nitty gritty, the heart of it. And uh, Garcia, man, he just hits at, at the end. of this looks like rainy goes off, but the whole the whole sound it's just it's there, man. It's like this is what the song, the essence of the song. Which anytime a band plays a song four or five hundred times over over several decades, it's hard to keep the same feel when, when as as when you first launched it. And Deal kind of had the same uh, same problem, saying it was facing the same thing. Garcia loved Deal; he played it all the time. But what happened in 1981 that makes it a little different, or I, th- I think maybe the first version is, is 1980. They added a jam, a second jam to the song. And eventually it became a set ender. So Deal actually became even a better song, a more desired song, because it had such a great jam at the end. It was a showstopper now um, at the end of the first set. But uh, in 1973, it's still hot. You know, they got the nice jam in the middle. So just interesting that those songs came back to back and how they evolved through the years. And then the uh, El Paso follows. And really the the... The highlights of the of the of this first set are the last two songs, uh, "Bird Song" and "Playing in the Band." Uh, th- this is such such a beautiful bird song. Uh, once again, like the "Love Each Other," it's kind of unique to 1973. I mean, they were playing bird songs since 1971, but it's to me it's like the essence of, of the 1973 sound, and probably because it was the last time um, bird song. There was a long layoff in bird song from. Uh, 19 from they played it in the winterland in 1974 one time but basically it came to an end in 1973 and birdsong didn't reappear till the reckoning till they did reckoning in 1980 then it came back into the rotation full time and what a great song um it it was had a seven-year rest maybe looks like rain could have benefited from a seven-year rest and uh be been revitalized but Hey, uh, this bird song is incredible. One of the best ones. I, uh, I love it, man. And um, uh, Jerry singing and, and the playing, and uh, with the two jams as opposed to the to the one longer jam from the nineteen eighties uh, versions and nineties versions. Uh, truly, a, a, such a unique sound from this period. A unique Grateful Dead song. And to close out the set. Playing in the band, which was pretty regular for 72, 73 in that era, but it never disappointed. It was a different different trip every time. This version, you know, Jerry's going off early, but um, I, I love the way Phil and Billy, their playing is just incredible in the middle. They take it in different directions, and um, this is a totally satisfying version, even though it's only about 17 minutes. I know as we get into 73, 74, you know, you're looking at some 30, 40 minute versions. I think there was a, I think it was in Montana. They played a 45 minute version of uh, playing 45, 46, something like that. I, th- I think pretty much if you, if you do it right, 10 minutes of playing in the band works pretty good. Like they did in, in Europe, 72, those, those versions were the first really standout versions, uh, Europe, 72. And then you got Vanita. Uh, 1972, which is about 20 minutes, and 72 was the year for playing in the band. They just hit it a thousand percent, like every time. And um, hey, but regardless, this version's great. Uh, 
unique. It um, doesn't sound like any other version of playing the band. Uh, definitely uh, worth checking out. The Nassau Coliseum crowd was feeling it at the beginning of set two as they charged towards the stage. And uh, Jerry Garcia asked the crowd to take a step back. And then the band broke into a beer barrel polka. Um, whenever this happens, whenever they ask for that step back and they do a little tuning, a little instrumental tuning, usually leads to chaos in the form of great music. Uh, just a couple of examples of where that happened. Obviously, before the second set of Cornell, they do the take a step back thing. Uh, in English Town, before the monumental Mississippi half step, they they do the take a step back, and I think it also happens that the Rochester uh, tape was another great half step. But it seems whenever they would ask the crowd to take a step back, it's as if they knew something uh, ama- amazing was about to happen. Uh, so after the beer barrel polka, uh, here comes Sunshine to open set two, um, one of the great. Uh, Great numbers added to the repertoire from Wake of the Flood. Most of these songs came uh, into the Dead's rotation on February 9th, 1973 in Palo Alto. Um, yeah, such a... These songs, it was a change in the songwriting strategy of Hunter, Garcia, and Barlow, and Weir. Um, they went from the old weird America. Uh, that, that's a, a term coined by... Grail Marcus describing uh, the music that Bob Dylan and the band created in the uh, Big Pink House and Sargates, and I, I love that term, Old Weird America. But whenever I hear it, uh, I think it best fits what the Grateful Dead had been doing in the, the early 70s with um, American Beauty, Worker Man's Dead, Europe 72, all those tunes that were linked together based off folk tradition uh, Tennessee Jed and Jack Straw, the the characters from another time and place, and uh, the Cumberland Blues and all that great stuff from that period. Um, but now we're we're moving into a new period, uh, equally as brilliant and and important as that period. Uh, and it begins with the songs "Wake of Wake of the Flood." Um, I think the Grateful Dead just said, "Hey, we're going to create our own our own uh, new." Uh, whatever you want our new our, our new idea of how songs our new concept of how music should be and it's totally Grateful Dead uh, re- related uh, songs that were built to be played live um, you, you take uh, Eyes of the World Mississippi Half Step songs that could just easily great songs but built songs that were built to be expanded live with, with jams where some of the uh, songs from the previous era didn't quite have that flexibility to it. Um, and then, then you're, mo- you're moving on from Wake of the Flood. You got Mars Hotel with Scarlet Begonias. And then you got The Fire on the Mountain and Estimated Profit from Terrapin, Shakedown Street. Well, all these great, classic Grateful Dead songs that just screamed out the essence of what the band was, was now about. Um, a more upbeat where, where, where the music and the, the lyrics led to live performance, more so than the past songs, but you know everything linked up together well. But there's definitely a shift when they went from Europe 72 to Wake in the Flood in the, in the songwriting uh, attitude of, the, uh, of uh, Hunter and Barlow. 
and the overall musicianship of the band. So it's it's a it's an interesting time, uh, nineteen seventy three, definitely a turning point. Um, so we start off with a, a excellent version of "Here Comes Sunshine," but every version from nineteen seventy three is excellent. And once again, they played this once in nineteen seventy four in the Winterland, and then this was dropped until. I'm not looking at any stats here, but I believe it was 91 or 92 when they when the dead brought back Here Comes Sunshine. So that was a long break for such a, a great tune. Um, so they, they play it really good here to open set two. Great way to get things going. If you're a, if you're an enthusiast of the song Here Comes Sunshine, um, I think, in my opinion, by far the best version. There's a lot of ver- great versions out there. Cleveland, December 6, 1973. And um, there's a lot of ways to find this music, but if you'd like to hear uh, that version, I have a YouTube page, Positively Garcia, where I upload um, what I feel are great versions. That's in there. Here Comes Sunshine from Cleveland, 12673. And it's like 17 minutes long, and the band's just going on and on, and Garcia's just ripping it, man. So that's that, 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 that Here Comes Sunshine gets me psyched, man. Every time I hear... I bring up the bring up the song. I think of that version. Uh, then set two rolls on with a couple of songs. Me and my uncle, good loser, and then the big moment. Let it grow is born. I am, I am black dirt. Live again. This is such a great debut version of like uh, of all the songs. I can't I can't think of a better debut version. Um, first time playing it. Then this let it grow. They they would play Weather Report the following night where they would do the the whole prelude. But um, if you listen to this let it grow out of context, you would never guess that this was the debut version. And for such an intricate song, every that they're hitting Weir's got the lyrics right, the timing's perfect on all the intricate uh, changes in the uh, structure of the the song, the jamming, um, and the outro jam is is where it's at on this one. It goes. Because Garcia is ripping and ripping, and it sounds like the song's landing, and you're like, "Hell, hey, that's a hell of a version." But then it kind of dwindles into a little play, into a little space. Then Weir kind of revives it. He's riffing, you know, playing some leads. Garcia picks up on it, and he blows away what he just previously did as far as a jam. So it's like a two two tiered, brilliant jam at the end, at the outro. It's one of the best ones you'll ever hear. Um, so yeah, a favorite Let It Grow of mine for sure. And then it eventually segues into Stella Blue. So you get the, the Wake of the Flood songs back to back. Um, so in the first part, actually in the first part of this second set, you're getting Here Comes Sunshine and then Let It Grow into Stella Blue. Um, and actually, um, Europe 72 was, was a great triple album. Of, of all the live stuff and I'm not sure why the Grateful Dead didn't follow that kind of thing here with Wake of the Flood obviously they went into the studio cut a good studio record but the live versions are just uh, a different story especially if you look at Mississippi Half Step and Eyes of the World much better live than were recorded in the studio they, they did the best they could in the studio but it's not the same thing so it, it would have been interesting if they could have done a double album with the Wake of the Flood songs uh, but anyway moving on a uh, good version of trucking, a lot, a lot of great jamming. Garcia's on a roll here tonight uh, with everything he's doing. 
goes into a nice drums. Billy's just kicking these drums. This is this is really like a nice four minute. Um, it's not your typical truck and drums other one. This is like a real uh, top notch drum solo. Billy, my God, these these guys were just so great in seventy two and seventy three and seventy four. Um, and then it goes into the other one, and my weird just didn't feel like singing the lyrics. Um, or just it, it didn't reach the right peak, but it's a good like 15 minutes of jamming the other one, and you're fully expecting to go into the other one, but it never happens. It just kind of, I wouldn't say dissolves, but then as it slows up a little bit, they're like, okay, time for Eyes of the World, and everything makes sense <laughs> once you hear how good this Eyes of the World is. It's like the other one was a warm-up, almost for the for the eyes of the world that that's how good this version is so um they're all they're all fired up at this point eyes of the world the first couple of verses can't even contain the the excitement and the energy coming through the music uh garcia's ripping and and here i i think i i missed one important point of the show um more than usual uh keith Gottschow is playing uh, electric, you know, Fender Rhodes. And in this show, it sounds incredible. There's like so many different points where, where I hear Keith playing that. And I'm like, damn, I wish he would have done this a little more in 73. I know he switched to it pretty much uh, in 78. But um, it, when, he, when he did play it in 73, it was like choice points. And you're like, yeah, that sounds great. And it really stands out. And it, it really seemed to ignite the, uh, ignite the band overall. And so the eyes of the world, you're cruising through the first couple of verses, uh, everything's flying high. And just this outro, like the last 10 minutes of it is, is all jam as we know. Um, and But this one is one of the spectacular ones um, between Keith's trading off with Jerry. And at the end, Jerry's just piercing, ripping leads for like two, three minutes, the repetitive, you know, the, the the leads that you die for, the Glen Gary leads. Um, yeah, so J- Jerry had it going on this night. And for me, this is the third greatest eyes of the world. There's two in 1974 that I might give a slight slight edge to. Uh, the Roosevelt Stadium one on August 6, 1974, and the Winterland, uh, the one in the Grateful Dead movie, which they didn't show the whole thing in the movie. But the whole thing, uh, the that 18-minute version is pretty great. And I probably put this one third. Um, but sensational, sensational eyes of the world. And th- there's one more song to go. And boy, they don't let you down on this one. Sugar Magnolia. And I previous to, only in the last year or two, did I realize how great this Sugar Magnolia is. Um, so that they're, they're ripping up the Sugar Mag beautiful sounding they get they get to the jam and Garcia once again is just his, his taste he the, the band's rocking out the rhythm uh, the place must be going nuts everybody's bouncing off the floor of the Nassau Coliseum he decides not to jump into the jam right away the band just like savors the beat of Sugar Magnolia at the beginning like no other version and just like the the joy the simple joy and pleasure and and celebration of Sugar Magnolia. And you know Jerry's going to rip it because he's been ripping all night. And when he jumps in, it's just like, my God, you put your hands up, I give up. Um, so but Jerry's ripping. And then once again, 
Keith with those uh, playing the Fender Rhodes there, man. He chops in with some great notes that sound great. Kind of creates like another level for Jerry to jump off of on on the Sugar Mag and just ripping, man. And then uh, they they bring it to an end. They don't do the rhythm uh, as much at the end, but it's it's like they did it more in the beginning where they pound out the rhythm of the Sugar Mag. But a, a great version, and this was a sweet spot. Uh, 72 to 74, the best sugar mags. Um, I think you got to look at November 19th, 72, Hoff Hines, uh, 73, man, that, um, I think it's UCLA, 11, 11, 73 as one of the most ridiculous, uh, sugar mag jams. Cleveland, once again, getting back to that Cleveland 12, six show, uh, one of the Winterland shows has a great sugar mag from 74, but it was such a great time. Like almost any of the diversions from that period, you pull out, you're blown away how good how good they play that. And the Grateful Dead complete their mission in Uniondale, Long Island, by closing out with an around and around encore. Uh, it was a tiger of a song back then in 1973. So the reeling and rocking uh, conclusion, perfect ending for a great night. Uh, in Grateful Dead history, as so many nights were, um, the the eyes of the world, uh, the first Let It Grow, uh, Bird Song, all the tip, all this '73 stuff that's so unique to that year, uh, makes this such a powerful show. All right, so make sure you pay homage to this great show on its 50th anniversary, and that's it for episode six of the Deadology podcast. I'm your host, Howard Weiner. As I mentioned earlier, I got that YouTube page, Positively Garcia. Lots of good, uh, great cuts on, on that page. My website, TangleUpInTunes.com, and you can find all of my books on Amazon. Uh, thanks for listening once again. I'll be back next week with something interesting. Peace out. Take a short break. We'll be back in just a few minutes so everybody hang loose.